Welcome back to the Noggin Notes podcast. I'm your host, as always, Jake Wiskirchen. This episode is going to be spent discussing the eight steps through the counseling process. I think that a lot of people are a little bit um, intimidated, I think is the right word, about psychotherapy because it, it doesn't take on the typical form of uh, medical science where you, you go into the doctor's office and they uh, they check you out and they uh, prescribe something and then you're you know healed in a certain amount of time. This is a little bit more flexible and a little bit more dynamic. And I think that that coupled with the stigma of the profession tends to be a little bit off-putting to people. And, and unfortunately, it serves as a barrier to treatment. So there might be people out there who are struggling and are intimidated by, by getting into therapy simply because it's it's a little bit weird. And I'll acknowledge that. I mean, I'm, I'm on the other side of it, and I understand how weird it is just simply because no two people are alike and no true two treatments are going to be the same. So what worked for somebody may not work for somebody else. We'll get more into that in a minute, but I wanted to mention Zephyr Wellness. Zephyrwellness.org is the website if you want to check out what Zephyr is doing. That's my company. I co-own it with my business partner, Lindsay Garrison, and we are trying to do innovative things like podcasts to the drive mental health to uh, more people than maybe would normally get exposed to it. So innovative and philanthropic is our tagline. And the philanthropic part comes in the form of being able to, to treat people of all stripes uh, without necessarily having to bill them for it through the use of our graduate practicum students who are highly talented and well-trained. So check out ZephyrWellness.org and we'll get on with the show. Eight steps to counseling process. I think the first thing that people wonder about counseling is uh, what what does it look like? You know, what does it feel like? How does it work? And I think before we get to that, the first step that people have to go through is to identify what the issue is. So that's not always obvious to to most folks. They they might just wake up one day and go, you know what? I'm tired of feeling like this. Whatever like this may be. Um, requires some reflection and some talent. So it's it's possible that you can just go into your counselor's office and say, you know what, I'm not really sure why I'm here, but um, I just feel a general dis-ease, uh, you know, discomfort about my life. And then through the course of conversation and a good thorough biopsychosocial intake process, that therapist, that clinician should be able to help you figure it out. But to, to really speed things up, it's a good idea to know exactly why you're going in there. One of my favorite questions to ask of people when they come in is I say, what brings you in today? And then they answer with something like, well, you know, I've, I've been having trouble sleeping or I have uh, panic attacks or I've been depressed lately ever since my, my mom died or, uh, you know, whatever it is, I'm drinking too much alcohol. And then, and then that gives us kind of a, at least a, a little bit of a roadmap, not necessarily a blueprint, but a, a, a guide to, to have conversation about attacking the thing that is really bothering the person. Number two is you got to find a therapist. You got to find a clinician, you know, counselor, therapist. We use those interchangeably typically um, that really hits the issue that you're seeking to correct. So for some people, there's an attachment issue that, you know, they never really connected with their parents and now they're struggling in their marriage. You might want to find somebody, uh, you know, a clinician who's really skilled at couples counseling or family systems. For somebody who's struggling with a substance abuse problem, you might look up somebody who has a specialty in um, treating substance use disorders. If you're dealing with anxiety, find somebody who's really good at anxiety. Um, And then, of course, listen to the people around you. If they're telling you that, you know, they're seeing something 
that maybe you're not acknowledging, then um, use that information too. That may clue you in as to, to what kind of person to find. The other half of the, the equation, though, is not just simply what the therapist is, is good at, but also what does their biography say? Every good clinician worth his or her salt should have a biography that explains who they are, where they came from, where they got their education, and what their areas of, of expertise are, if, if you'll uh, pardon the expression. I know none of us claim to be experts, but that seems to fit. Um, and speaking of fit, you'll know whether or not you click with your clinician as soon as you start talking to them. And, and oftentimes you can see that through the biography. So, for example, I tend to be very direct with my clients. I call a lot of things into the room. Uh, I don't spend a lot of time treating symptoms. Um, I, I, I'm, I move very quickly. And I openly state that. And some people really like that and others don't. And that's fine. There are uh, lots of us out there who do things differently. So know what you're dealing with is number one. Um, find a therapist who's going to fit your personality and your style and who has a, an area of experience that's going to fit. And then uh, the third step would be check your finances. Uh, this stuff is not ex not not cheap, I should say. Um, it's it's like any other medical health care. Uh, it's it's going to cost some money, and most of the time insurances will cover this. It's a it's a benefit in most insurance plans, at least in America since 2010, since the uh, introduction of the Affordable Care Act, or also known as Obamacare. Every insurance plan now is required to carry some mental health benefit. Um, except for self-funded plans. If you're a part of an organization that has a self-funded plan, you're going to want to check on that and make sure that you're covered and don't just assume that you're covered. All therapists take cash. Uh, you know, it, I mean, not necessarily cash. It could be a credit card or a check. But uh, we, are, we all do take cash, and there is a, an ability to negotiate fees typically. So um, check that out. Make sure that your therapist is in network with your insurance. And if they're not, ask them what their rates are so that you can budget appropriately for it. Uh, after you've figured all that out and you've made your appointment and you're going to go do the intake, what happens next is they're going to give you a, an intake packet to fill out, just like any doctor's visit, and they're going to ask for some biographical information, um, who you are, where you come from, what you're struggling with, and then a, a pretty detailed history, and that's where I mentioned earlier I used the phrase biopsychosocial. So biologically, we want to know what your, your medical history is and so forth. Socially, we want to know what you've encountered in the past, whether you've been a victim of abuse or neglect, um, whether you've had some treatment before for similar issues, what your family system looks like, what your job history is. And some of this stuff can be, be very, very um, fear-provoking. It, it opens up a lot of intimacy when you're talking about issues that are so close to the heart, and you may not want to put those on paper. And that's fine. Uh, I would encourage you to to do so anyway because the, the next thing I was going to mention was confidentiality. Part of this process is that everything you say is protected by uh, HIPAA and, and our own ethics. We, we're not allowed to talk about anything that you share with us unless it's a direct threat to yourself or others. And, and by that, we have, to, we have to be reasonably sure that it's imminent. So, uh, you know, imminent suicidal ideation or imminent homicidal ideation. And then, of course, if we hear about abuse or neglect or isolation of uh, vulnerable populations like children or the handicapped or the elderly, we'll have to report those because that's, that's woven into law. And it's, it's, just, it's just the right thing to do anyway. But we are required to break confidentiality to keep people safe. But outside of that, uh, I tell people frequently that you can come in and tell me that you you know, set your place of work on fire, and I'm not allowed to tell the police. 
uh, you and I should probably have a conversation about why you set your place of work on fire, but I'm not, I'm not allowed to share that with anybody. Um, unless of course you told me that you're going to set your place of work on fire and you have a plan and you're going to execute it, you know, within the hour, then I'm going to have to break confidentiality again to keep people safe. But know that that intake packet is for your own benefit because the more you share with your clinician, the, the better off you're going to be in, um, being helped. It doesn't help anybody if you keep secrets from your therapist. I know it's very difficult sometimes to acknowledge one's own past, especially the mistakes that we've made and some of the embarrassing things that have happened to us. But that's all necessary as part of the conversation unfolds. So if you're really, really, really uncomfortable, just write in those blanks that ask for you know your, your history. Say, please ask me about this in person, uh, uncomfortable putting it on paper. And that's fine. Nobody's going to have a qualm with that. Number five, ask about your clinician's theory and their theoretical orientation. So, for example, I come at people with a a deeply rooted emotional functioning lens, and that's how I see people. I also infuse a lot of Carl Jung. Carl Jung is one of our legends in the field. He talks about unconscious and conscious function, talks about spirituality. I find it very, very deep and holistic. Uh, gives me a very nice perspective on the individual as well as the the systems in which they operate. So ask your clinician about that because it'll give you an indication of how, how long it's going to take. And that's the other question you want to ask is what's the prognosis here? If you come in with an issue, your clinician should reasonably, after that very thorough inter- interview, be able to give you some semblance of a time frame about, and frequency, by the way, of contact, should give you some semblance of time frame about how long it's going to take you reasonably to recover if you go along and do, you know, what what's recommended, um, you know, journaling or listening to podcasts or, you know, attending once a week or once every two weeks or whatever that is. And then um, you'll be able to, to figure out what you want to do with that. Of course, this impacts finances as well. So that's that's another reason to ask for what the prognosis is. The important thing, no matter what, is to go at your own pace. We don't want to be going at the clinician's pace because the clinician simply isn't living your life. You are. So if you're getting uncomfortable, please, please, please speak up. And if for any reason the fit isn't there, you're allowed to fire us. Um, please fire your therapist and go find somebody who's a better fit because if if you don't have a good rapport with your clinician, it's pretty much dead in the water to begin with. Um, we are not plug-and-play. You cannot just simply pluck somebody out of one clinical relationship and put them into another and expect the same results. Um, It's entirely client-driven, so please know that going in. And that gets into number six, which is goals and objectives. You are the designer of your own goals and objectives, and of course your therapist is going to help you out with this because they're the one who's, you know, who've had the master's degree and the thousands of hours of clinical training and, and supervision. So they're going to help you set some goals. Generally, you're going to walk in and say, you know, I'm feeling anxious. I don't want to feel anxious anymore. No, that's nice, but what are the steps to that? What are the objectives to that goal? Uh, they may be, you know, mindfulness training. It may be learning to tolerate emotion and journal it in a book. It may be, you know, a whole host of things. But the idea is that these goals and these objectives should be reasonable, they should be measurable, and they should be attainable. So if you're not comfortable with that, please speak up and, you know, and, and modify the course of, of the therapy, um, which is number seven. You will sometimes get new goals as goals get met. I worked with, uh, with a client once who's, uh, who was seeking treatment for panic disorder, uh, panic attacks all the time, uh, 
restlessness, uh, lack of sleep, and um, couldn't figure out where it was coming from. Well, we got through that, and it turns out there was some historical stuff built into that. We got through that, but then the conversation moved to meaning of life issues. She wanted to know where she was going in life and what her career might look like and what her passions were. Um, up until this point when she came into therapy, she had never considered what she actually wanted to do with her life because she was so stricken with the panic attacks. So once we got those out of the way, it opened up a new opportunity for new goals and new objectives that were completely different from the reason she ever entered in the first place. So be mindful of that. That's step seven is always be reevaluating your goals. And um, of course, there will be a diagnosis that comes along with this, but we don't want people identifying with their diagnoses. I'll talk about that in another podcast at some point. And then number eight is uh, discharge. Um, when you've completed your goals to your satisfaction, not the clinician's satisfaction, mind you, your satisfaction, then you and your clinician should together come to some agreement that says, you know what, I think we're done here. And uh, then you can just uh, schedule tune-ups you know, later on down the road if you need to sporadically. So if I go through this one more time, first step is identify what you're struggling with. Uh, second and third steps are find a therapist who's going to fit and then make sure that your finances also fit your therapist. Number four is know that you're going to have to consent to this treatment and fill out an intake packet that could be a little scary. Um, also, and I forgot to mention in the consent part, Therapy is not like medical treatment. I did say that, but what's what's not like it is uh, sometimes it get it seems to get a little uh, heavier, a little bit darker before it actually gets brighter. And the reason for that is because your clinician will be probably helping you to look at some things that you didn't know were there, or didn't want to know were there, or were purposely trying to avoid, and that can can change some things. There's some risks and benefits to counseling that people are often not aware of such as you may end up reevaluating your entire life, uh, quitting your job, breaking up with a, a significant other, all to find you know, who you truly are. So there are some risks, but the benefits in the long run are that you, you know, you're going to be more whole as a person because you're going to be more in touch with who you are. Number five, uh, ask about the clinician's theory, theoretical orientation, and prognosis. Six, set goals and objectives. Seven, you might re reassess those and find new goals along the way. And then eight is uh, discharge. You go back to living your life uh, without making appointments to go see your counselor. And, and this very closely follows the medical model for really anything, uh, you know, broken arm or surgery, you know, rehabilitative processes. Um, ours is just a little bit different because the goals are unique to the individual. Usually if you walk into a doctor's office, the doctor's is the one telling you, how he's going to go about doing your surgery or your your ablation or your 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 casting process whereas in therapy the client is more or less the one who says no this is what I want for my life and um, we don't get to stand in the way of that uh, we may we may advise and say you know is this working for you or do you think this is the best option but we we're not here to tell you how to live your life so those are the eight steps to the counseling process i hope somebody found that interesting and if you did Feel free to reach out and find a therapist. Psychologytoday.com is a great place to start. Um, you could also, if you're in Europe, go to sane.org.uk or mind.org.uk. And uh, you can also just go to your insurance provider uh, page or insurance carrier page and look for the providers list, and they'll be able to you know, give you who, who's in network in your neighborhood. So with that, I think I've taken up enough of your time. I appreciate you listening. And as always, on behalf of the Noggin Notes team and the Zephyr Wellness team, I thank you and I wish you great mental wellness. Bye-bye.